Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from Brazil, Italy, the United States, and a see you in hell from Israel and the United States. Starting off in Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro has still not conceded his loss to Lula da Silva in the presidential election in Brazil at the end of October. Bolsonaro's supporters continue to claim that the election was stolen, despite the fact that Bolsonaro himself has not actually made this claim yet. Bolsonaro's supporters have been getting increasingly theatrical with their protests of the election, one of them actually like grabbing onto the front of a truck as it careened down the highway, several of them just going up to military installations unprompted and praying for the military to intervene, like praying for the military to stage a coup. And I don't mean praying like like in a theatrical way, I mean like like as if to God, but to the military. Bolsonaro supporters have also been pictured using the Nazi salute at each other. So, you know, if that isn't unmasking your actual political opinions, I don't know what is. In Italy, Giorgio Maloney, the new prime minister and political descendant of Benito Mussolini, the original fascist leader of Italy, has made good on her plans to crack down on immigration to Italy. Specifically, she has prevented several boats carrying migrants from Africa from entering Italy and saying that they need to enter France instead. This is precisely what she has promised to do. We will only see in the future if her ability to maintain this political coalition based on anti-immigrant racist fervor maintains itself. Moving on to the United States, we have direct evidence from the FBI. These are just audio recordings of Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers, one of the main participants in the January 6th attempted coup in the United States, on the phone talking about, quote, hanging Nancy Pelosi from a lamppost, end quote. Rhodes is on record saying that he thinks that they might have been able to pull off the January 6th coup specifically if they had, quote, brought rifles. Specifically, he's saying that they should have brought rifles and, quote, that they could have fixed it right then and there by hanging Pelosi from a lamppost. Essentially, this is the leader of a paramilitary organization that we know was in contact with Donald Trump and some of his liaisons, saying that, yeah, maybe if we had engaged in more serious political violence, we might have been able to carry out that coup. If only, Rhodes is saying, if only they had just been more brazenly, openly violent, if only they had murdered members of Congress. This is essentially what we already knew, that Rhodes and the members of the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, the Proud Boys were saying behind closed doors. But the fact that we now know that they said it, that it's you know an indisputable fact and that it would be part of any potential criminal investigation and uh, criminal accusation against them is important, especially because it might link these calls for political violence to sitting officials during the Trump administration. Speaking of political violence, there has been an increase in political violence in the United States, although not quite as much as was feared. There has been a lot of bombing, specifically firebombing. A man in a Make America Great Again red hat uh, used a firebomb in Tulsa, Oklahoma at a donut shop after the donut shop hosted a drag event. This happened after hours and nobody was injured. It happened on November the 3rd. Additionally, a half dozen black churches and other black cultural spaces were firebombed in Jackson, Mississippi. We don't know details about exactly how these fires started. However, the pattern of the fires and their locations in the city really make it 
appear as if these were arson and that they were intentionally set on historically black churches. Again, nobody was injured in these attacks. This, however, happened on the day of the election. Prior to the election, there were also several other threats of political violence, specifically some to synagogues in New York and New Jersey. The suspect has made it clear that he was motivated by anti-Semitism, that that is why he said that he was going to commit these acts of political violence. Beyond political violence, there was also a lot of attempts by the GOP to prevent the midterm elections that happened on Tuesday from going well. Specifically, the state governments of Florida and Missouri said that they would not allow the Department of Justice into their election centers, literally saying that they would not want the feds to monitor their election and that they wanted to do it all by themselves. These are states that are controlled by Republicans and were trying to prevent the federal government from denying Republican attempts to steal the election, I guess. I guess that was essentially what their plan was. And the last big important news that happened before the, the midterm elections is that Steve Bannon has had his prison sentence delayed. He was convicted of two counts of contempt of Congress earlier this year and was uh, sentenced to six months in prison and six and a half thousand dollars for these counts of contempt of Congress. He has always said that he was going to appeal these sentences, so, you know, it's not a particular surprise that he did so. Essentially, this means that he is, you know, probably not going to actually face these consequences, or that he's at least going to make a very concerted effort to kick this can as far down the road as possible, possibly all the way to 2024. But the results of the midterm election that happened on Tuesday might put that particular plan of his in doubt. Specifically, the Democrats did significantly better than was expected on election day uh, on Tuesday. However, it is still very likely that they will lose control of the United States House. Now, that is still in question as I record this in the evening of November the 9th on Wednesday. So it's possible that by the time that this is released on Thursday, November the 10th, the Democrats will actually maintain control of the House of Representatives. But it remains relatively unlikely. There was some election interference on the part of Republicans, specifically some armed men were quote-unquote monitoring drop boxes in Maricopa County in Arizona. There was also the political violence that I previously mentioned in Jackson, Mississippi. Also some acknowledged problems with counting votes in several parts of the country. However, by and large, this actually went off a lot more smoothly than one might have worried. Specifically, in the sense that there was not a massive wave of political voter intimidation or violent intimidation at the polling places. The sort of more horse race narrative, as in like just straight up electoral politics, but not talking about, you know, political ideology in any particularly serious sense, is that the GOP did not win in the way that it was quote unquote supposed to, in the way that pollsters expected them to. Specifically, a lot of candidates that are close to former President Donald Trump and you know, i.e. we're talking about Dr. Oz running for Senate in Pennsylvania, Joe Kent, who is running for House in Washington State, lost their races. And these were races that most pundits expected them to at least be really competitive in. And also that they thought that people who, you know, maybe were somewhat more mainstream Republicans might have been able to contest more clearly. A lot of other races remain up for grabs as I'm recording this on Wednesday, uh, specifically Lauren Boebert, who is a big Trump ally uh, and a just 
crazy firebrand for MAGA republicanism. She is really on the hook. It's entirely possible that she's going to lose. And uh, where it's standing on Wednesday is that this will go into a mandatory recount because it seems as if she and her opponent are at a distance of, you know, under 100 votes from one another. The meta take that a lot of pundits are having now is that, you know, oh, this is the end of Trump as the leader of the GOP because his allies are underperforming the other Republican candidates, specifically uh, DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who did extremely well, but that's not a particular surprise. He's an extremely popular governor running a Republican state at this point. So I personally am a little bit skeptical of this take. You know, I personally, I've just been sitting around for the last six years hearing pundits saying like, oh, this is the end of Trump. How could he possibly get out of this one? Well, you know, he might. He's actually an extremely good political operative. He is very good at manipulating public opinion. I don't know if it's going to work this time, but I don't think that it's guaranteed that it won't. It's entirely possible that the results of this midterm election will spark a war of conflict inside of the Republican Party, one that Trump has not actually particularly faced so far. He won the primary and the party, you know, let him go for it. And then he won the presidency and he was the leading light in the party. It's entirely possible that now he's actually going to face opposition from within the party to try to move it in a sort of more mainstream conservative direction. But there's no guarantee that the mainstream conservatives will win that fight. It's entirely possible that Trump and his coalition will win. And even if mainstream conservatives do win, they will be shaped. They will have been shaped by their participation in the extra-legal, quasi-fascist activity that Trump and his coalition engaged in. Additionally, it is entirely possible that the GOP is going to win the House, and that the narrative tonight is like, you know, I guess that Democrats won by losing. I don't know. Uh, obviously, there are things to celebrate about this. The fact that a branch of the GOP that is just openly opposed to the existence of representative democracy has not clearly won. Yeah, that's good. But the fact that this was like a squeaker, you know, the fact that this was a close election, that's not a good sign. This is quite bad. All right. I'm going to close out this episode like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, I'm talking about Mir Khan, an Israeli and U.S nationalist and terrorist. Kahan was born in the United States, specifically in New York, in 1932. He came from an extremely conservative and even orthodox branch of Judaism and political Zionism. He grew up at a time when political Zionism was achieving its greatest success, that is, the establishment of the State of Israel after World War II in the wake of the Holocaust. Kahan got his political education, his political awakening, in this time when it was not entirely certain exactly what was going to happen to Jewish people who were still living in Eastern Europe or Jewish people in the United States who had seen their government express, you know, relative indifference to the plight of Jewish people who were experiencing the Holocaust. This particular political education made Kahan a Jewish nationalist, and that was the perspective that he took for the remainder of his life. He was also a virulent anti-communist because he hated the way that the Soviet Union had handled Jewish citizens. As he grew up, he became a rabbi and also was for some time an FBI informant and was in general a militant for right-wing Jewish identity politics. 
He founded an organization called the Jewish Defense League in the United States, which eventually had branches across the world. It was a right-wing militant terrorist organization uh, that advocated for Jewish nationalism. In the United States, it primarily operated in opposition to the influence, involvement, and presence of Soviet diplomats in the United States. Kahan himself was arrested in 1975 for attacking a Soviet delegation to the United Nations in his hometown of New York. He also has admitted to uh, planning to kidnap Soviet citizens in the United States, to bombing embassies of the Soviet Union, uh, to lots of other stuff. However, by the 1970s, Kahan had left the United States for Israel. He immigrated along with his family, and there he continued to maintain his activities as a right-wing militant, as an extreme conservative militant, as an anti-communist, and as the most racist and exclusionary form of Zionism that was at the time expressed in Israel. Specifically, he worked for decades to enter the Knesset, which is the Israeli parliament, as a member of an extreme far-right party that he founded. This far-right-wing party got one seat in 1984, which he uh, took up, and he was in the parliament for the remainder of his life. He spent his time in parliament promoting racially and religiously divisive legislation. And by racially and religiously divisive, I mean like literally he was trying to separate people based upon their race and their religion. Some of the bits that he was trying to promote was preventing the marriage between Jewish and Gentile people, the forcible expulsion of non-Jewish people from Israel, or their relegation to the status of second-class citizens. He also specifically promoted the use of violence by settlers in Palestinian territory. Uh, the ideology that inspired him has come to be known by his name as Kahanism. Its established position is that they think that Israeli law should be governed essentially by the philosophies of the 12th century Jewish leader Maimonides, which essentially calls for a Jewish theocracy in Israel, and it uses these religious justifications to explain the need for violence and the forcible expulsion or relegation to second-class citizen status of all people in Israel who are not religiously Jewish. In 1990, Kahan was visiting New York, specifically he was visiting a library in Manhattan, when he was assassinated, this week in history, the November the 5th, by an Egyptian-born U.S. national. This Egyptian-born U.S. national was later convicted of this crime and also several others, including involvement in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Kahan was mourned by a lot of people in Israel and the United States, specifically conservative people and right-wing people in Jewish communities in both of those countries. His ideology, his political perspective, Kahanism, lives on in far-right Israeli politics, specifically including the Otzma Yehudit, a political party now operative in the Knesset with uh, uh, like half a dozen seats, I think is what they got. They are now in political coalition with Benjamin Netanyahu, the prospective new or, you know, returning prime minister of Israel, essentially enshrining this extreme right-wing exclusionist racist ideology in the country's parliament. So, Mir Kahane, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Really, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your comrades about it.
if you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out and all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right and fascism 15. All right. Thanks very much. And I'll talk to you next week.